Maybe that's a feeling of agitation caused by the presence or imminence of danger. Why do you think people believe in ghosts? the one-armed man. All right, I confess. I did it, you hear? And I'm glad. God, I tell you! What are they gonna do to me, Sarge? What are they gonna do? Sorry, son. That's not my department. Two. One. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to Inside Movies Galore. I am uh, 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 your host for tonight. And uh, today we are go uh, going to be continuing Kimberly's uh, birthday films. And we are not done enjoying hell yet. So, uh, we, have, uh, we have decided as a group to discuss... Hellraiser 2, Hellbound. Uh, from 1988. This time directed by Tony Randall. Uh, 
uh, and uh, written as a screenplay by Peter Atkins. So let me give a, a small synopsis here of the uh, film, as IMDb tells us. Uh, Kirsty is brought to an institution after the death of her family, where the occult-obsessed head resurrects Julie and unleashes the Cenobites once again. So, the Chenard Institute. <laughs> there will be spoilers. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We'll probably show us that the first time, too, but... If you don't know us by now, we will spoil the heck out of this movie. So, <laughs> in any case, uh, Kim, uh, once again, uh, why don't you tell us uh, what were your thoughts of this particular second sequel? Well, I saw this, obviously, after the first one, and I was still rather young when I saw it. I'm, I want to say it was... Probably like 1988, 1989, when I did see it. Um, I did not see it in the theater because there's no way I would have been able to be allowed in the theater to see that. Um, I I think I saw Hellbound either on TV, like HBO or Cinemax, or I saw it when we rented on tape. I can't remember, but I know I saw this movie more than I saw the first one growing up. Because the first one, I'm sorry, the second one was always either on cable TV, or we rented it, or we owned it. I just can't remember how we saw it a lot. But I remember looking at the second one and seeing certain gaps and thinking there's something that they're leaving out of the story. Uh, you know, as the first one was much more cohesive. It made sense. But there were so many aspects of the second movie that... Even as a kid, I'm like, okay, this is not making sense. This is not making sense. And as I got older and became an adult, I was like, okay, this shit really isn't making sense. So, even though visually the second one looks better, story-wise, it, it left a lot of questions. And there were a lot of plot holes for me, so... Eh. Okay. Um, what about you, Brandon? Uh, what were your thoughts on this second film to the I mean, series? My first time watching this one was not long after watching uh, the... Actually, no, it was a good long time after watching the first one. I, I had only the first one in my collection for a long time. Then I got this uh, other collection that had all of the... Um, what were those angel movies? Uh, God, what were they called? It was the one with the uh, fallen angels that were destroyed. Prophecy. The Prophecy. All the Prophecy movies. And uh, Hellraiser 3 through basically all the rest of the Hellraiser movies except for the remake. To Hellworld. At least. Uh, and uh, I was like, well, I'm missing one. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to go find it and, and I'll admit I didn't watch any of the other sequels until uh, Kim and I actually got together and then we kind of marathoned them um, but the second one I did see because I'd gotten it used from Movie Stop which was a great store and I'm really sad uh, at its passing oh I miss Movie Stop oh my god but, uh, but I got a fairly good edition of the sequel, and I popped it in, and I actually enjoyed the sequel a little bit more. I felt like there were some plot holes that were filled for me 
like, you know, where the Cenobites came from. Uh, I really liked the villain. Uh, yeah, he was so cool. I love the villain in this movie. Uh, a lot. And uh, so it, it had a lot more there. And of course, I always hear the opening theme to it. That's as, because as it's I'm, my go to sleep movie. Yeah, so. Oh, yeah, it, let's it, explain this right quick. So, for okay. whatever reason, this movie became, at, when we moved to our current house, when we bought our current house, Hellbound Hellraiser 2 became my go to sleep movie. And so, I don't know, maybe because I, 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 I don't know. I, it just became my go to sleep movie. So, that was a movie we played all the time. And so I conked out, and Brandon would go to sleep to that opening theme song. I could probably quote every line from, like, the first ten minutes of that movie. <laughs> it was like, oh, Jesus, wet. <laughs> <laughs> and just, uh, where they tear him apart at the end of the, the first movie, but then it's recap. That entire recap I've got memorized. Uh, it's, uh, so, I, I will always have that in my head. But I had a fairly good first impression of it. When we watched it this time, it had been a while since I had seen it the entire way through. So it's kind of, it was kind of cool watching it all the way through again and not kind of falling asleep through the first half hour. It sounds like Grave Encounters. We do that as well. And I, I don't think I've seen Grave Encounters 2 all the way to the end for a long time. <laughs> mm, okay. Okay. Um, how about, uh, you, Dustin, uh, when did you, uh, uh, first see this? Well, so, kind of going back to when I saw the first Hellraiser, um, it was when I was starting to explore horror, and there was some guy who taught fencing classes at my undergrad school that was friends with, uh, one of my friends, and we were talking about horror movies, and they said... That the Hellraiser series was good, but only the first two. So I was told I was told to watch the first two and then pretend the rest of them didn't exist. Um, and so I saw this. I saw Hellbound uh, shortly after I saw the first movie. And at the time, I, I wasn't. I was kind of. I think I was distracted, or I had something going on, so I didn't really give it much attention, or. Uh, well, really any credit. So I didn't really have much of an opinion of it the first time I saw it. But then, after I saw it again, I saw it again on The Last Drive-In with Joe Bob Briggs. And I really gained another, a greater appreciation for it, um, especially after I started paying better attention to it. So I think I've seen this movie about a half dozen times at this point. Um... And I really enjoy it. Like, it has such, like, an amazing villain. And it really does a great job of expanding on the concepts that were, we were introduced to in Hellraiser. So it's like, in Hellraiser, we get the premise, and then Hellbound takes the next step in establishing its world-building. And I think it's probably one of the best horror sequels out there. Um, I myself, uh... This was another one that I had watched like ten years ago, or is when I first was starting uh, to get back into collecting some movies after a lot of my movies were stolen from me. Um, 
I ended up coming across the Anchor Bay Hellraisers sets, and of course the three through Hell Worlds sets, and of course the various sequels after those as well. I just became a kind of collector of the films, and we just watched them as we go. And I, I think the first time I actually picked. It back up was when I ended up buying from a certain seller that I know uh, the the two singular hero films. It's the same damn things in the Star Scarlet set, so I decided what the hell. I don't really need the third 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 one on Arrow. It's fine the way it is, but uh, um, the third one turned out to be pretty okay. I saw that earlier today. Time. I didn't watch that again. I uh, didn't pull it out, but I did watch the first two. Uh, with it, 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 I watched them. What, what was it? Uh, like three weeks ago, and then I watched them again like earlier today. So, um, seeing them again, and then I, I watched the behind the scenes of them three weeks ago. So that was really cool. Seeing how they did the effects behind the floor, uh, the floor uh, uh, st uh, stuff, and then. Some of the stuff that they did behind this movie was kind of cool. But um, as far as my thoughts on this uh, uh, this uh, particular film, I thought it was <laughs> it was definitely a unique sequel. I mean, I always like the um, or whenever they do something in an asylum. Um, I don't know why, uh, why it's just creepy and. Um, I mean, uh, they, they do it in Night Nightmare on Elm Street Three, Dream Warriors. I mean, they uh, they do it. In, yeah. Um, what, what is it? They uh, they do it in the second season of uh, of uh, horror, horror, story. horror story. Oh, that was excellent until the aliens got involved. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I think the asylum scenes are interesting because it is what particularly where Americans view as an asylum you know you see this whole idea of one flew over the cuckoo's nest you know and what you would normally be faced with in reality is something completely different yeah you don't have these like wards of people all sleeping in the same room you don't have an entire floor of people where they're just locked in the set a padded room with you know in a straight jacket 24 7 you know the hospital in the year. Yeah, um, well, I'm talking about nowadays, babe. Oh, well, well, then, nowadays, certainly. You would be more, you would know better than any of us, you know, how mental hospitals today would look like. I mean, I'll give you a good example. Um, because your job, by the way. It's your job. Uh, actually, uh, Dane. Uh, Cherry, uh, which was the state hospital, uh, one of the state hospitals in North Carolina, uh, they would do stuff similar to that, have multiple people around, they would rotate beds, they would actually psychologically torture a lot of the people, and they were doing this up until the mid-2000s, and then they yeah. stopped it. Well, that, so, that's, what I was, that's what I was gonna say there, well, okay, so first of all, um, said I saw this film for the first time just before we started the first episode, um, and I have to say, uh, well, I like the first one, but I have to say this one I liked significantly more because I felt like the first one, it did take a while to get going, really, into the 
mythology of it, and so uh, with that all established, in the more or less at like enough to get us started in the first one. Once we get here, then we're able to really dive into the mythology a lot more, uh, and we're able to get a really compelling human villain whose motivations and his practices as in the human world that they mirror what he will become in the Cenobites realm. I don't, I don't know, do we call that hell or do we, I don't even know what it is, but, um, it's it's hell. Okay, well, we'll we'll call it hell then, but the, uh, you know, the, his actions and his, um, the world that he has set up, he has created his own hell on earth, uh, in which he is the devil, basically, and he has control, and, uh, one that speaks to the fact that, you know, it, it is funny, because you remember Tom Cruise's big, uh, you know, anti-psychiatry rant on the Today Show, which, um, you know, that was back when Matt Lauer was, you know, Mr. Trustworthy, which, you know, Maya, the table turned, uh, but the thing is, like, yeah, you know, the, you know, the, the whole, the Church of Scientology's view on, uh, on psychology and psychiatry and drugs and all that, you know, it's, it's extreme the other way, but what he was saying about the history of psychiatry and mental hospitals and stuff, certainly for quite a long time, he's not wrong, you know, that mental hospitals and that field, uh, they were quite medieval for a long time, and especially like the the ones that were a little bit more removed from conventional society where they just basically chucked the person in a hole like like brandon said they remain that way for well past the time that they should have and so today yeah you know the the what constitutes a mental hospital is far tamer than what you saw in this film or even in something like um one floor of the cuckoo's nest which is a little bit more of a conventional portrayal of what that. What I call uh, what I call a mental hospital is the public school systems. So. Well, that's that's its own kettle of fish. But the, uh, <laughs> and the point is that uh, I think that for quite a long time that was uh, more representative of what mental hospitals were rather than not, because the tools that they were using to fight these things were so crude and medieval that, you know, it's no surprise why, uh, you know, someone like a Tom Cruise or, you know, an L. Ron Hubbard who, you know, he did use his own techniques that were very much in line with what, you know, the psychologists were using at the time, so he's not, you know, above it, but the point is, like, there's a reason why you, one might be horrified by that sort of thing, because it was medieval for quite a long time, we obviously come a long way since then, but, uh, this is a person who clearly uh, revels in the medieval side of it and in the ability to control and possess and torture. Well, and look, can we talk about the contrast between Dr. Chenard and Frank? You know, because, you know, they're, they're two totally different people, but they're, they're, they're both searching the limit configuration and that other dimension for their own reasons. Yeah. With Frank, it's all about pleasure, and you know, it's about it's about enjoying life. But with Doctor Chenard, it's almost about you know because he says to Julia, like I have to see, I have to know. With Doctor Chenard, it's about knowledge. You know, like it's about seeing the other, seeing these other dimensions. Yeah. You know, it's 
I find, I, I mean, I hate to say it like this, it sounds so elitist and so snobby, but I almost find Dr. Chenard's motivations to be a bit more acceptable than Frank's. Well, he's especially doing a great degree, actually, uh, especially he's as doing a it for the well, he thinks it's for the greater good, but it's more or less for his well, own Frank's personal enrichment. It's for his own gratification. Frank's was the ultimate pleasure. This was uh, the ultimate knowledge, but maybe of the ultimate knowledge of, uh, of what he's never experienced. Well, there's yeah. a duality to the Doctor that uh, is not explored as much. I mean, the Doctor is actually almost every bit as nasty as Frank. Yeah. But... One, he's got a cool, controlled nature on the outside. And also, his is more rooted in sadism than yeah. it is in the other. He's also, there. he's also in a position of power. Uh, yeah. as, oh, yes. As being, uh, you know, head doctor of this mental ward. And plus, mm. he's got this, like, basement of all these, like, Top ten crazies, you know. Uh, uh, one of the plot, one of the plot holes that that bothered me as a child, that still bothers me to this day, is that just like when they hinted in the first movie that Frank may have molested Kirsty, the in the second movie it's hinted that Doctor Trenard killed Tiffany's mom yeah. so that he could take control and take custody of Tiffany mm. because. It seems like Tiffany's mom went to Dr. Chenard for help for Tiffany because, like she said, these puzzles are consuming her life. Well, Dr. Chenard later on used Tiffany as a conduit to solve the lament configuration. For whatever reason, he felt like he couldn't do it. I guess, you know, he just felt like he didn't have the skills, but she did. And so she solves it not knowing what the fuck it is, not, not, not having any motivation beyond curiosity of like, okay, what's this? I guess I'll solve it. And which is weird that the Cinnabites did not take her like they would everyone else. Well, they, they said that it was not hands that called them, it was desire. They yeah, knew, exactly. They knew it was Chenard using her to open the boxes, and yeah. I actually caught that on this viewing. Yeah. I think you're right. I think Chenard did kill Tiffany's mom so that he could have her for the puzzle boxes. He's clearly been studying them for a very long time. Exactly. Three of them, for fuck's sake. I think that's like, one of the ooh. things that I like about the Cenobites is uh, when they appear, they, they, they question, well, at least the lead one, Pinhead, Pinhead. Questions, he questions the reason why the box was opened yeah. to begin with. And he ponders uh, out loud, you know, he doesn't exactly know why, but uh, but he's got a sense of extrasensory perception, and yeah. he re he reads people very well, you know. Well, and, and he's not above reason and negotiation and fairness and you know that kind of stuff. So I mean, they're that's the thing. They're harsh in terms of the punishment they dole out, but they're fair at the same time. So it's like. That, that's something different than, like, again, a, a Jason Voorhees who will kill pretty indiscriminately. And so, you know, it's like, well, that's that's kind of neat that they have a, some, there's some cause and effect and some kind of rationale behind why they do what they do. And it's like, well, that's nice. Um, well, the, the, thing, the thing that we're not talking about with Dr. Trenard um, that I think is really important to establish is that he is very clearly in the mold of 
people that existed in the late 19th and early 20th centuries uh, who were very much like the um, Western esotericists or people interested in occultism or alchemy or um, spiritualism uh, that also they could also find ways to integrate that with science um, and in fact quite a lot of the Nazi doctors that other ones in the upper echelons of the Nazi party were very very influenced by uh, very specific forms of occultism and the foundations in science as it existed then and so mm -hmm. he's and also on the walls of his house you see like Alistair Crowley and you see um, the uh, different aspects of Thelema and you see sigils and so he's very clearly in that mold of what was the emergence of blending these old ideas that are being resurrected into the modern day and trying mm -hmm. to find a scientific link to connect these things so you know and that's that's what i think was part of what made him so interesting plus the fact that he even if he wasn't doing that he still created his own hell on earth in which he was the devil he had control he was uh you know able to control who was suffering and why and what he could get out of them and it's like what an interesting character that was and um at first, like, I kind of thought that the photo, I, at first I thought that was him as a young man. No. Uh, but then it was, uh, it was uh, Pinhead when he oh. was a human. And Let me just slide into that. When you were talking about before with the Cenobites realizing that Tiffany did not mean to open the box because she wanted to, this is where, this is one of those many plot holes that kind of made me go, eh, because in the first movie, Kirstie had no idea what that fucking box was. She knew that clearly it was important to Frank when he was like, no, 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 put that down. And so she solved it. The Cenobites came. Even though she didn't know what the fuck it was, she had no curiosity beyond why is this important to my uncle, and yet they were still going to take her ass. Well, you could so see Tiffany, it. But Tiffany, who solves it, you know, again, she has no idea what it is. She solves it, but somehow her innocence is more important. Well, I, I, I would I would take a little bit of disagreement with that in the sense that uh, Chrissy, she, if you look, before she even knows what it is, uh, you can kind of see it in her eyes that she has that Eve holding the apple from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She has that look in her eyes of this kind of what is this thing and it kind of is like this sparkle of you know beyond just sheer curiosity because Tiffany was like a pure innocent um, whereas here it's like you could kind of see that there was that look of like almost greed or uh, which is not even the perfect word to say it but like it, you could tell that there was like almost almost like it was calling to her like the promise of whatever uh, you know, pleasure, untold riches, or whatever, almost like a like a GD in a lamp, you know. Um, like, you could tell that there was that call, that low that was in her eyes, and um, so, I mean, but again, it wasn't entirely, uh, like, she didn't even really know what it was, but there was that allure, and so I think that they could probably sense that, uh, you know, they, and again, they're not above uh, reason, they're not above negotiation, so it's like, you know, I, I think that, you know, in other words, there was enough there to make them want to 
you know, have her uh, and, and extract the the pain and the pleasure from her, but you know, not yeah. Like, but in the first movie, though, I can. I feel like the filmmakers were trying to sort of hint mm -hmm. at her not ha not being as virtuous as yeah. you would say because she has a boyfriend who sleeps over in her bed, but at the same time they go to painstaking lengths where you never see her and Steve really kiss, you never see them have sex, and in fact, when he spends the night in her bed, they are fully clothed. And I'm sorry, as a woman, I'm just gonna say this. She is in the kind of clothes that you wear when you did not just fuck. Yeah. I'm on my period. I'm constipated. I'm cramping. I'm going to put my men's t-shirt on and my men's pants on. And the dude sleeping next to her like, well, at least I got to sleep next to her, you know. Yeah. So, like, I feel like if while, you're while, if you're while they were very much There is a line that Pinhead says where Pinhead says something to the effect of you know, we know you're curious about about this. Yeah, uh, and that's what so I thought. There, there is, I think, something subconscious. I think on a subconscious level, with there Kirstie? is something with Kirstie, yeah, yeah where okay. she's well, at least initially, where she's maybe she curious know. about. Yeah, well, I mean, and and it's and really, you know, the best of us have that part of us that if we were given a, uh, you know, if we were given a genie lamp, you know, wouldn't our eyes kind of sparkle with thoughts of riches or thoughts of whatever, you know, even even the most virtuous among us, there's still that temptation factor. I mean, and that, that really is what the Adam and Eve story is all about, ultimately, is that it's this uh, temptation even amongst the most innocent uh, in what was then, you know, God's creation and everything. So it's, I, I think that, you know, there's definitely an aspect to it there. Um, and so I, I would, yeah, I would say that in defense. But the uh, the one thing I, I didn't mention in the last one, uh, speaking of Adam and Eve, one thing I didn't mention in the last video uh, that we did, but um, but uh, something that it gets re because it gets reiterated in the beginning of this thing. So you have Frank saying, you know, Jesus wept, and and that's kind of a less severe, but it's in a similar vein of like Jesus Christ as a as an expletive or as an exclamation or whatever, uh, but you—that's a very key phrasing there because uh, it's specifically Jesus wept, and it is—it's calling back in that context is calling back to suffering, a great suffering in the Passion um, that is undergone willingly and undergone for the sake of everyone else in the history of humanity, other than. Jesus himself, as opposed to Frank, who is doing it totally for selfish uh, pleasure gratification, and so it's an interesting kind of callback to that, again, that uh, perversion of this idea of, well, the, this selfless, virtuous suffering versus, you know, the, the pleasure is the pain, and the pain is the pleasure, um, and uh, so that's just an interesting connection point, but then you move into here, where you've got this hell on earth doctor who has all this power and he's afraid of the real power that he's able to get when he goes into hell and then once he gets it then it's like to that's, think that I had my, to Aw, dang, I wanted to say that because that was my favorite line. Well, that's a good line. Well, to think that I hesitated 
for a second or whatever. And you know, it's oh, Chenard. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's a good. Thing. Yeah, because uh, Dr. Chenard. That's the thing. Dr. Chenard becomes a new Cenobite. We we get to see in this movie we learn that the Cenobites used to be human, and we see yeah. Dr. Chenard become his own kind of Cenobite. And yeah, he's yeah, more, yeah, that's he's a very just, beginning. He seems uh, to be much created. more powerful than the ever Cenobites too, because he he takes them out at one point. It's yeah, because he's connected. He, it's because he's, he's connected, connected to, to Leviathan. Leviathan. Yeah. Well, and the they still have they still have uh, free will. Humanity. Well, and his his, 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 his memories are also fresh too. His memories are fresh. Which is why the humanity of the Cenobites is uh, kind of what uh, what draws the uh, the Cenobites to work hand in hand. Mm -hmm. With Kirsty, and with with uh, what's her name, to work against this Doctor Chenard, because now they're powerless. Yeah. They're back to being. Uh, Doctor Chenard loves being a Cenobite, though. Like he is so he is one thousand percent excited. <laughs> in, like, I think there's a difference team. between I think there's a difference between Chenard and um, Pinhead, formerly known as Oh God, what was his human name? Oh, oh it's God. Better. Elliot Spencer, is that these were not, you know, if you look at the real, the, the, the human counterparts of the Cenobites, you could tell, like, these are not bad people. You know, Elliot Spencer was a fucking British soldier. You know, the chatter, the chattering teeth Cenobite was a child. You know, so it's like, he was, a, these are, he was an SS officer. Yeah, you no, know, he's a British soldier, sweetheart. Okay, okay, well, I thought I was, that's British. I thought I saw this. one, Dane. Come I on. thought I saw, well, I thought I saw that skull, the skull symbol on his hat. No, no, no. First of all, you get the British accent. He's clearly English. He's an English officer. Um, again, these are people who their their worst crime is probably curiosity. But Chenard, yeah. he was an honest to god bad person in his normal life. You know, oh, yeah. in his real life, he killed, he scammed. I mean, look what the fact that he took one of his own patients back to his house just so he could revive Julia. It wasn't just one patient, it was several, because all of, the, of them were empty by the time. Yes. But once yeah, he got to, to revive to Julia, he had to, he had to kill like a dozen people to revive Julia, and he had exactly. no problem with that. As soon as he was turned into a Cenobite, it was like, then he was like Jason Statham and Crank. <laughs> yeah. well, there was another thing I had as curiosity because, and I asked this question, I think, when we were watching it originally. I mean, when, as soon as, like, Pinhead, he, he goes into the dimension, he basically becomes Pinhead. You get to see the creation of the Cenobite yeah. at the very beginning. And the one thing I didn't, I never quite got and we were trying to we were trying to theorize this is Frank had been in that dimension for so long and still was there by the way when uh, when they arrived in this movie yet he never actually became a Cenobite now I remember you were saying Ken like you felt like he never truly gave himself over but neither did the neither did some of the others I mean, well, we, don't, uh, we don't know that, though. Yeah, we don't know that. With Frank, you know, because again, remember, if you, uh, if, we're, if we're taking the original source material, which obviously they, they drew off of the characterization of Frank from the source material, Frank, his, his characterization, what he was looking for is the complete 
opposite. Like he 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 already knew what the Cenobites were. He knew what the lament configuration was. When Frank went searching for that damn box, he knew what it would do. So when he went to solve it in the in in the book, he laid out an an offering of things to the Cenobites because he was like, oh. You know, they're going to bring me this, they're going to bring me that, da 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 And so when it came, it was like, um, yeah, this is not what I was looking for. Like, <laughs> when, when the hot bitches want to come back? You know, y'all ain't hot bitches. So <laughs> he already knew what he was getting himself into to a certain degree, except for it just wasn't quite wrapped in the package that he wanted. Yeah. I'm going to go with the people like, you know, Pinhead and his, you know, three Cenobite cohorts, they were probably just people who were curious. Yeah. And then they got, and then, and then they became corrupted. Frank was someone who was probably already corrupted, but he's, at the very, at the end of the day, Frank seems to be a very selfish being. You know, yeah. the way that he manipulated Julia when he was alive, he manipulated her, and then had the fucking nerve to stand next to his brother on his wedding day to the woman that he fucked just a minute ago, you know, and then at the end where he betrays Julia and then manipulates Kirsty in the second film, thinking her father is suffering in purgatory, suffering in hell, but he manipulates her to get her to come and what save him or rather be there with him so he has someone to fuck all there, time. Yeah. All, all he cared about was a damn warm spot to stick his dick in. He's very selfish. It's just all about like the power and yeah, wanting, yeah. wanting the power and the knowledge. And he just loves being a Cenobite so much. Like the first thing he does is kill a bunch of his patients. I recommend amputation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh my god. Keep in mind also that Frank is being kept in his personal hell. Specifically because he escaped and cheated the Cenobites out of their claim. Uh -huh. you know, so, and then meanwhile, uh, Dr. Chenard is basically like a tourist, you know. So it's a different arrangement there, you know. Like a VIP tourist. <laughs> yeah. Get the I feel like there are levels. I feel like they, there's a hierarchy. Like people who yeah. get to be Cenobites and then the people who are, well, they're the ones who are face down and shit. With their legs sticking out for eternity, you know? <laughs> I feel about, like, levels of his evils. I feel like because of the levels of his evils that he had in life gave him the power and the pain that was much more powerful right? than the other Cenobites, you know? You mean, like, you mean Dr. Chenard? I think yeah, I can buy oh, that. I think, like, Julia was trying to, like... I think Julia was trying to double-cross him it's like okay, we're gonna push you into this box. I don't think she expected him. To, I don't think she expected him to become a Cenobite. Yeah, well, I, I don't think she. I don't think she fully understood how that all worked either. So I mean, again, I would. Yeah, she's new with that part of it as well. But I mean, she only really knows insofar as she had a uh, a hand in uh, everything having to do with Frank uh, coming back and all that stuff. So I mean, well, remember she said. Remember she said like. How do you think I was allowed to come back? They wanted souls, you know, and it's like she was allowed to come back. It wasn't like, like to a certain degree, yes, he did quote unquote bring her back. But if we want to go by Julia's statement when she said, Why do you think I was allowed to come back? You know, yeah. if Leviathan, if the 
you know, overarching being that controls that underworld, if that being did not allow her to come back, it doesn't matter what the fuck, you know, Janar did with that fucking mattress. Yeah. You know, she was allowed to come back because Shannard, I guess if you want to call it the overarching being of that underworld, could tell that there's someone else up there who's trying to get in contact with us. Okay, bitch, you can go back if it means that you are luring him to us. Yeah, because that's who we really want. And um, yeah. well, the, the thing, so, so something that... Um, I, I think that, you know, you're right as far as there being a, a hierarchy of, of, of things and a system for it. I mean, you know, take most either mythologies or religions or whatever that have multiple either heavenly or hellish beings. You'll find, you know, hierarchy of angels, hierarchy of demons, all that stuff. So well, I could definitely buy that. Devils, as they, by their own, uh, yeah. their own report. No. Well, and, that's, and that's, again, that's kind of why I almost hesitate to say that it's hell necessarily, because, again, it's largely purely well, perception. Technically, it's the labyrinth of the. Technically, it's the labyrinth, uh, uh, which they the make a lot of allusions to the labyrinth of the mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's a lord of the labyrinth. That's what they call Leviathan. Exactly. exactly. There, is some, there are lots of questions when I get to that uh, series. Like, uh, I mean, and it includes the first, uh, uh, the first movie, like the uh, the weird uh, cricket eating bum, the the guy who basically is there. His his role, who he is, that strange demon-looking thing that uh, came out of the wall at Chris Kirsty when she first used the box. Uh, the one like thing. Yeah. Then there's the um, then there's the whole uh, carnival um, oh, uh, yeah. that that they were dealing with. And well, apparently that animal thing was the manifestation of the engineer, the overarching being. It, well, basically it's Leviathan, which is very fucking stupid that that was the manifestation of that. Well, it, it, okay, so you know, I, I didn't get to mention this in the last episode, and I would like to have, but I'll say it now. So that, that creature in and of itself that came down the hallway in the first one, in and of itself, pretty creepy looking, but... And I was like really into that scene and the tension of it, but then I had to pause and laugh because you could totally see the cart that is pushing. The thing. <laughs> I was like, "Oh wow, they didn't catch that!" You know, mm-hmm. you totally see the cart that was pushing the animatronic down the hall. <laughs> it's like a it's like a hospital gurney or something. Yeah, they didn't try to hide that shit. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I get it. It was pre CGI, but still, it was just uh, that. Part made me laugh, but uh, I mean, I think honestly, I think part of why these various things are there and we're not necessarily fully made privy to all of them is in a similar fashion to like, um, well, a lot of paranormal stuff from the 80s, like uh, Ghostbusters or especially uh, Poltergeist, where in Poltergeist you see all kinds of weird shit that is never explained, like the spider demon thing with the skull head or the face that emerges from the portal to scare Craig G. Nelson and is never seen again and you know things like that so I mean in other words in this place uh, there are creatures and realms and beings beyond our knowledge and so um, 
you know, it's, it's just, those are things that, you know, will never, again, Lovecraftian idea, things that we'll never be able to truly comprehend that exist in this world. And, um, you know, so I think that's part of it. And part of the terror is not really knowing what those things are, or what they're for. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I, I actually, by the way, I did check um, a close-up photo because uh, the, the photo we saw in the movie was not all that close-up, but, like, I saw the close-up in your right, he's definitely an English officer, so I apologize to all, <laughs> all English <laughs> officers in that period. Uh, can we just say, can we just say that quick about the throwaway characters, though, that no one has mentioned? The boyfriend in the first movie, who literally is just fucking there, I don't know why he shows up in the movie. And then we've got the 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 young like resident doctor. Uh, oh god, what was his name? I've already forgotten his name. Uh, so Kevin. Kevin, Chris, whatever the fuck the, the guy is in the second movie. He's Dr. Um, Kennard's assistant. Yeah, he's a, he's another doctor. Kyle, that's his name. Kyle. Yeah. And he that just dies be- so fast. <laughs> <laughs> well, Julia tricks him and. I feel bad I for Kyle. I feel genuinely bad for Kyle. Yeah, because he didn't deserve that. But it was like, damn. Like, when they just like, okay, we've got this other character who is obviously supposed to be like her her love interest. Not really, considering that she doesn't really know him. Oh, yeah, shit. We got to get rid of him right quick. Oh, I know. Try to kill him. <laughs> well, it's, it's kind of funny because it's like the opposite of like a James Bond situation where... James Bond will go through women like underwear and, uh, you know, here, and they almost never endure in any real significant way. And here it's like, geez, is she ever going to find someone that'll last through the whole movie? You know, I don't, I don't think so. Yeah, the boyfriend Steve goes home, his parents take him home and he just like, um, broadcasting, like, she wakes up, he's not even there. He goes, oh, we sent him home hours ago, like, damn. Well, it's like, after all the shit that, he, that she's been through, it's like, you would think that he, she'd want him to, like, stay overnight forever, you know? And it's yeah, like, like, well, she was, she was unconscious, so she yeah. didn't have a choice in that matter. He just left her ass. Well, that's, that's awful. I mean, it's like, I would be, like, again, this is the kind of person I am, but, like, you know, it's like if I'm, you know, your your boyfriend or whatever. Uh, it's like I'm dedicated. It's like I'm going to be there, you know, twenty four seven. Because especially with all that shit that they went through, it's like, you know, you, you need to be by her side. You know, you gotta gotta protect your lady. You know, absolutely. And clearly, he believe he 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 thought the story was true because he lived through it. But he goes home to his parents. His parents take him home. He leaves her there, and like in the story, in the second one, we're we're to believe that just she, she's there for a couple of days. Yeah, and he just leaves her there, <laughs> like nothing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't see nothing. Her whole family is dead. <laughs> you know, he goes home to his parents, like, um, girlfriend, what girlfriend, Kirsty? What? I <laughs> might as well go back and suck on my mommy's tit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's a big mama's boy, and they can still control him, basically. Maybe that's it. I don't know. It yeah, I know that one of those couples that were at the dinner party was, were his parents. Yeah, well, in, in which case, Christy, you're better off without him, girl. You know? <laughs> Kyle's a much better guy for you, but then he died. 
Yeah. Did anybody else notice that the cop in there almost seemed to be like uh, pressing her? Like, I know you killed those people. Oh, <laughs> well, I never got that. No, uh, I, I did. I mean, nice. Uh, well, here's the thing, like, cops, well, of course it goes, I mean, well, cops in a lot of movies, I don't know if they're necessarily this way in real life, but, like, in a lot of movies, whenever there's someone dead and there's, like, one witness, you'll always have that cop that automatically assumes that the one witness did it, even if oh. they, there's no evidence for it, and it's like, mm -hmm. that's such a, that's a <laughs> proof. It's just the joke that Brandon makes about Law and Order SVU, like, yeah. oh, the husband did it, the boyfriend did it. Like, that's a exactly. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because, man, you know, my, my ex, like, that was all she wanted to do by the end was to just binge SVU and not spend any time with me at all. And, uh, babe, do not take that as a fucking sign. <laughs> but, like, the point is that, like, uh, I would hear all about the show and she wouldn't spend any time with me but like but upon hearing it in the background like yeah it was that same that it's not even good cop bad cop but it's the just the cops that are automatically like okay you're the one witness to this crime so you must have done it and oftentimes they'll find out that they're right and it's like well oh gee whiz you must be psychic you know um but um yeah it's that that is kind of a trope in its own fashion but um well, see, yeah. I feel like that the cop, whatever the fuck his name is, because because we never see him again. He, he always like you know? in the beginning, but yeah. <laughs> I feel like that cop that his his whole thing wasn't necessarily that he thought that Kirsty did it, but it was like, you know, you're in a crime scene where you've got her stepmother dead on the bed with chains stuck in her. You've got you know a corpse that's skinless upstairs which is her father, and then you got another corpse that's in pieces with chains attached to it all over the, you know, the top floor, and other random shit throughout the house. The house is just trash, and you're like, what the fuck happened? Well, okay, they, they so, that, you know, as they're investigating the crime scene. Yeah, and all those other random dead bodies that were the men that Julia fed to, to, to uh, Frank, you have to wonder, like, what the fuck happened? Okay, You've got the boyfriend who was a, probably a bit more lucid, you know, and they let him go home. But you have Kirstie, who was obviously out of her fucking mind and was probably saying all kinds of shit, like to the point where she was, she had her eyes open and the cop is like, welcome back. You know, well, it's like what, what side, uh, side, uh, side the cops are on because obviously the doctor got state's evidence which is the oh that was such bullshit <laughs> that would never that, sorry, that would never happen in real life that would never happen in real life. like how the fuck is that going to help that girl remember what happened oh yeah by the way i need a key piece of evidence from the crime scene delivered to my house not the hospital i need you to get that <laughs> bloody ass Top mattress, not the box springs, but the mattress. <laughs> uh, into my house, into this very open room with no desk or nothing else in it. Like, get the fuck out of here. Like, seriously. Like, that, that took me out. I was so fucking pissed. <laughs> well, it just kind of speaks to the sort of influence like Dr. Chenard actually has. I mean, it's called the Chenard Institute. Like, he runs that yeah. thing. Uh, so, he might actually have had the kind of clout to like swing something like that. Well, and, uh, he must have 
having the boyfriend, having the boyfriend go and having uh, Chrissy there. Well, you know, she's a woman, so obviously she's crazy. She's got hysteria, and so we got to keep her under observation. But the boyfriend, eh, you can let it go. Exactly. That's downright Freudian, right there. <laughs> exactly. Which I mean, you know, I don't think that he's necessarily. I mean, okay. Here's here's something that kind of freaked me out initially. That was a great character introduction. Uh, so we have the doctor, and he's talking about brain surgery and shit. The woman has her fucking skull opened up. And I guess that she's still conscious to a certain extent because you saw her. Right? Yes. And it's like, uh, is she like doped up on painkillers right now? Because it- well, remember, your brain has no pain receptors. Uh, and a lot, in a lot of neurosurgery, there are some neurosurgery that need you to be awake mm-hmm. to see how you react to it. Like if they're wow. trying to tap into a certain, particularly if they're working with your frontal lobe. They want to make sure they don't fuck them, that they don't fuck with your speech centers and stuff like that. So, obviously, Shannara is a psychiatrist, but he's also obviously a neurosurgeon. Yeah. The fact that he's got this woman's brain open and he's... Which, here's the fucked up part about this. Is that I never understood, what the fuck is he doing? Yeah. This is not... This, this was like some like medieval version of lobotomy. Yeah, because he wasn't. It wasn't like he was fixing a blood clot or no shit like that. He took a goddamn bone saw, like a tiny, like a miniature version of a bone saw, and just sawed into this woman's fucking brain. Oh, you can see the smoke coming off. Uh, I know. Like there was nothing medicinal no, going on with what he was doing to her. Yeah. Did it even look like he put her under or anything? No, no, she wasn't under at all. I'm sure she probably wasn't feeling any real pain, but... Well, not that it would have bothered him if she did. (laughs) I will say this. uh, I used to do extensive study back into the... uh, It was a fascination point for myself back when college, when I was studying originally. I learned a lot about psychiatric history and stuff like that. Now, in the late 80s it's highly unlikely they would have that level of control um but back in the 60s and even early 70s the chief psychiatrist was the was literally in full control over the asylum and they used to do lots of really uh unethical experiments well, babe, think about it like this. This film takes place, we're, we're, we're led to, to believe that this film takes place probably in the UK. It is a British film. Yeah. Um, we got, Julia has an English accent. Um, so many other people around them have English accents. Shannard has an English accent. The UK or Brooklyn well, they did miss in Brooklyn, so... Yeah, I mean, I could buy either. I mean, Clive Barker's British, and it was a British film. The first one, uh, for sure, and the second one. But, like, I could buy either. I'm pretty sure the third one takes place in New York, which um, is at least close oh, enough to the Canada Institute. Mm-hmm. LA? Either way. I felt like it was LA. Well, uh, it could have been. I got a new I mean, pride, but they, they, they definitely with these movies they definitely like budget. Yeah, you can't tell where the location is. Like it, the whole idea is that a well, it can be anywhere. You yeah, know? 
Yeah. Well, and, and keep in mind, especially like uh, well, in in uh, decades past, I don't know necessarily now, but like in uh, ye olden days, like early twentieth century, you would have um, a lot of boat and plane uh, traffic that would go between uh, New York City and London. And that's why they developed, for film and television, that's why they developed the transatlantic accents because it was a fusion of American and English into this really phony accent that nobody had naturally. And it kind of died out on its own because it... Mm, not necessarily. You still have that New England accent. You well, got that's, some that's different. That's different. Oh, but that's different than the, the transatlantic accent, though. The that's the same thing. Well, not necessarily. I mean, there's like the the accent that you have if you're from like Massachusetts or something isn't the same as the transatlantic accent, and um, they, it was specifically created for film and television as opposed to like uh, Boston, especially is like really thick. But um, you know, Massachusetts accents different than New York, different from all these other uh, places, and those did generate organically, and they did um, they're maintained today. Uh, but my, my point being is that this kind of struck me as like, well, it could be either New England or uh, London. Either way, you would have people that would probably have had enough travel between the two to where you could buy that there would be uh, Americans there or um, uh, British people there. You know, I, I could buy either one. Yeah, I, I will say that it's... Uh, I, it's doesn't really matter in a lot of ways. I do feel like uh, it's more along the lines of I still feel like they took some liberties with how much control he had. And I will and I will say that the majority of the uh, rights and stuff that people get from uh, mental health didn't really. I mean, HIPAA wasn't even a law until the nineties. It's um, just crazy to think about. But, you know, things like that, you know, a lot of these things, there are reasons why these laws exist. I mean, ethics standards, the things that they would do to people. I mean, as the, the lobotomy is a good example. Yeah. The guy who tested the lobotomy, uh, 99% uh, of his subjects died. But the one subject that lived seemed to be calmer. Uh -huh. These were chimpanzees at the time. So, obviously... That means that the that the procedure is is perfectly good. Well, it's the same thing with electroconvulsive therapy and insulin therapy. I mean, um, oh god, who was the doc? Who was the economist that a beautiful mind was based off of? Yeah, they, they would do insulin shock therapy with him for to, to treat his schizophrenia. Um, I remember at me. Come on, baby, you, we've talked about this before. As recently as 2007, I had a psychiatrist who recommended electroshock therapy to treat my oh. depression, and I was like, "You want me to fry my brain to treat my depression?" She's like, "It's the best thing." I'm like, "Okay, you're done. You're, no, I'm done with you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm fucking done. I may be depressed. I ain't crazy." In, the uh, in defense of ECT, ECT is the last resort. I have but something it's not like it is in the movies. <laughs> um, the the doctor in is a character in that game I play in that horror game I play. 
And yeah. a lot of his look is based off of Xenobites, and his main power is electroconvulsive therapy. Uh, he was like a very unethical doctor, to put it very mildly. But you see, actually, in a in a in a, fl- in a brief flashback of Tiffany, you see where she was clearly um, um, subjected to ECT, and yeah. I'm guessing that was not to treat anything, but more to tap into those hidden parts of her, her of her brain that Chenard wanted, which he's a piece exactly. of shit, because, again, yeah. he was... this. I, I feel like of all the characters, besides the whole Kyle character, who was just, like, there, but Tiffany is probably the most sympathetic, because, you know, her mom is murdered, she was basically kidnapped by this doctor, no one even knows her real name, the nurses just name her Tiffany, you know, and she's in this hospital where she's experimented upon by Chenard, all because he wants to use her to solve the limit configuration. <laughs> well, and uh, well, people are shocked to hear her speak, too. Mm. Yeah. Well, her, yeah. when she gets to talk, it's kind of a, it's kind of a good moment. Because it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's the reveal of Chenard in his full Cenobite glory, and she's just like, oh, shit. Exactly. Yeah, he was probably already a monster to her, but now he's even more monstrous. He's Absolutely. like, come here, I'm your doctor. Yeah. Well, I'm oh my god, her. get away. Well, that, that moment in particular is what made me think of Silent Hill, because you got, um, well, the in especially in this film, uh, not so much in the first one, but in this film particularly, you got uh, people in their own personal hells that are indicative of the life that they lived, um, you know, when they were when they were alive, uh, which is redundant to say, but um, you know, it's indicative of their lives. And um, in one way or another, and with Doctor, he was a malicious force, and so he becomes even more so of a malicious force um, when he's sent by. And you have quite a lot of monsters in Silent Hill that they're basically twisted versions of what they were or what they were to the person who's perceiving them. And, uh, so that, that's a very common element there. Um, the, uh, the interesting thing with, uh, him, I, I think is just, again, how much he has control over his situation. Cause again, he's plugged into the Leviathan, but also in a way it's like he's, well, he's kind of the Satan of his, Ward uh, in the living world, but then here he kind of becomes his own Satan in a more literal sense, even to the point of controlling and defeating the other Cenobites um, and kind of getting them in mind. And I think part of it is that he, again, because he's so recent, you know, his memories are still in effect and he hasn't, you know, lost them, and so he's using those to his advantage. On well, top of um, status, you know. They do they do make a point in one of the commentaries of pointing out that remembering that they were human weakens the other Cenobites. Yeah, uh, and that makes sense. That makes sense. And quite but, frankly, because Chenar was already so fucking evil to begin with, it doesn't matter if he can remember his human self. Because again, going back to that line and to think I hesitated, he doesn't care. Nah, he, yeah. he sees his Cenobite self as his so-called final form, as the greater version of himself. Because, mm-hmm. like, you look at his little, like, I hate oh, those little snake fingers is that come out of his hands, you see, like, 
anything that he can dream up um surgical scalpels anything yeah, that like flowers you know, surgical, yeah everything that comes out of those snake those like fucking tendrils. Or whatever, tendrils yeah you know to the point where his fucking scalpel is stronger than the other set of eyes chains yeah you know, he sees himself as a god so quite frankly like you say he does enjoy being a cinnabite much more than the other ones the other ones especially pinhead you know i see it he, i think he sees it more as it's his job you know like okay yeah. i'm chilling out it's my job it's my mm-hmm. duty you know well, i'm enjoying making you suffer <laughs> yeah i i enjoy making you suffer but you know whatever but with Chinar, he's like fucking i'm here like he hadn't even done anything yet he was just like he, you know he, oh, good. He just, right. <laughs> yeah he had just gotten transformed and he was like i had to think i hesitated i'm like oh god you're already enjoying this and you haven't done nothing yet right. so you know yeah. he's so fucking evil in his real life it doesn't matter if he can remember what he was like being human or not because to be honest he was never fucking human he was always a monster all pretense gone for humanity. I agree with you, Dustin. I think that was a great line for that. I to think. I hesitated. Again, he was Just never fucking human to begin with. Uh-huh. He was always evil. Like... With Elliot Spencer, with the little kid, with the woman, with the fat guy, you could sit there and say they were they were probably human and, and they were probably decent people. But you know, Chenard, he had no problem with killing his own patients. To you know, his own hospital was used as basically a front for what he ultimately wanted, which was you know this other world. Yeah, and the and the esoteric knowledge and the power within, and it's uh, what I was saying before is he kind of took to it like a duck to water because he kind of was already there. You know, he was just he was able to fully realize his twisted visions, and um, which I I remember feeling pretty bad for the Cenobites when you see their human forms and you see the chattering teeth one. He's just a kid, and I'm like, what did he do that was so wrong? You know. And well, I, mean, I guess that was because they were curious or whatever. But I do like the fact that even despite them being agents of suffering and, you know, all that stuff, I like that they do seem to have a sense of duty or a sense of what is just or fair. Or that's why I like the fact they can be negotiated with. Um, and, you know, it's just I think that's an interesting dimension. And, um yeah, I guess you could call it sort of like when you make a deal with the devil, except that in that case, the devil usually reneges on his promise or usually tries to find some loophole <laughs> to get what he wants. And here, it seems again, it seems like they're more in the business of uh, doing fair dealings and not having people squelch on a on a deal. Um, and, and again, they can be uh, talked into doing something else and it's like well that again that gives them more dimension and that's where the demons to some and angels to others that's where that comes in so that you can't put them in a convenient box like that which is even though i guess you kind of can because they're in a puzzle box but you know it's uh which that that was a little weird in the first one so it's almost like putting the genie back in the lamp except here it's like well 
I guess that that's just to summon them or to make them go away rather than to, like, contain them. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. And with the Cenobites, you know, as far as... I have, well, I've always looked at the, um, the Cenobites we see with Pinhead and other people, um, at least in the first two movies. I look at it as curiosity killed the cat. And that what yeah. they're being punished for is their curiosity. Now... With Elliot Spencer, because he's the only Cenobite that we get to see a backstory with, you know, after the first movie. We see the fact that he was a soldier. Probably, more like, actually probably an officer. Um, and yeah, he, he was. You know, fuck this. I'm over this shit. You know, I, I, I want something more out of life. I'm feeling unfulfilled. So you can sit there and say that, okay, well, Especially you know, he's... Exactly, exactly. You can sit there and say that yeah, maybe he's being punished more than anything else. But we don't know what the woman, the big guy, or the kid did for them to be quote-unquote punished beyond their curiosity. And as far as the child, that's the only thing I can, I can imagine that his curiosity got the better of him. I don't want to believe that he was like, super evil, you know? In, uh, in Hellraiser 3, uh, the plot centers around the pinhead persona has been separated from Elliot Spencer and yes. it's loose in the world and they spend a lot of time with uh, Spencer kind of giving more of his backstory and like fleshing that out and uh, there was a line this was in the comic, I don't remember if it was actually in the movie, I read the comic adaptation too, um, but there was a line where it was like, you know, after the great war, many of us stopped believing in God and were just looking for anything and I found the box. And that's very accurate, actually, to what happened to, well, the, the countries that fought in World War One, especially Britain. Uh, like, because we, we had the war in the 20s, and we had, you know, the emergence of jazz and stuff, and that ultimately culminated. So the well, but that, that's what I mean. Like, so they, we had it like that, but the, the, the British, they had it so much worse because they lost a lot more people than we did and they it affected them a lot more heavily than it did even for us and well, uh, as a side story the reason why it affected them is because they lost a lot of the sons of the aristocracy Oh uh, yeah, because they all when these these older the, the older generations they sent these boys into war thinking that we're gonna be they're gonna be back home in a month you know because they're so used Britain was so used to win, winning so they sent their sons like Elliot Spencer into war thinking that they'd be great warriors that they would be they'd come home as heroes and instead. They either came home broken or not at all. And so you have a lot of these great estates, these titled families who lost everything because their eldest sons died. So that's why that war, above any other ones, was such a big deal for Great Britain. So, which makes sense that Elliot Spencer would be a World War I officer. Oh, yeah. you know, he's likely the old, eldest son of an of, a, of, a, of an aristocratic family, and given his um, the way he carries himself, even his accent, you would likely believe that he probably is the eldest son of some wealthy family. And he has, he has very this life. He has a very straight posture, even when he's in his Cenobite uniform and a sense of duty and exactly. a proper way, way of speaking and conducting himself, and that definitely carries over. Yeah. 
Well, yeah. we not much about Julia, have we? Well, Julia, oh, yeah, that, well, Julia <laughs> or, even, or even what Chrissy does, because, I mean, uh, everything I was saying with, uh, with what uh, her resourcefulness and her courage in the first one, that carries over here quite a lot more, um, particularly as it affects Julia, because she is elevated much more to that classical... Uh, wicked stepmother slash evil queen um, archetype. Oh, this point, she's fucking pissed at Julia because Julia, yeah. you know, Julia, you know, Julia it, killed her father. Exactly. In the first movie, yeah. up until the point where they kill, where her and Frank kill Larry, you know, you can say that okay, Julia's an evil bitch. You know, she's terrible for cheating on on Larry. Da da. da. You know, she's terrible for the people that she had a hand in killing to bring Frank back, but. Again, it wasn't, she wasn't, she was still pretty terrible, but it was when she killed Larry that it crossed the threshold for, for Kirstie. You know, when she just thought that, you know, Joey was cheating on her dad, she's like, yeah. oh, this evil bitch. When, when she realized that, no, she has killed my father. Like, fuck that bitch. And when you get to the second movie, even though Julia technically is dead, you know, she's brought back. She still hates her because because of Julia and Frank, Kirstie has lost her father and she will never get him back. And, you know, there's not a whole lot that can, that can be said about Julia because not only has she not really redeemed herself in the first movie, she has actually gotten worse. Oh, much worse. She did get over Frank. <laughs> well, but he betrayed her. Hello? Part of that doesn't mean anything. Julia's a smart woman. Well, think about it. You know many women who, many people, actually many people who are in those relationships that are abusive, they get stabbed in the back, they get hurt, but but they always come back. The difference is that Julia has been tainted by the underworld, you know, she was already fucking evil to begin with, but now she has spent a little bit of time in the underworld, she's become corrupted even more so, and she sees Frank for what he is, because for Julia, she's clearly loyal to Leviathan, Frank never was, you know, because Leviathan has allowed her to come back, you know, she can come and go as she fucking pleases, as long as she does Leviathan's bidding. Frank wants out. He never wanted to stay. And now he's trapped in that space. And, you know, and Julia's like, you know what? Fuck you. Well, and that's, that's a big point of difference between Julia. He, uh, well, Frank, the, Frank did kill her, so Julia is not going to be Yeah, I don't Frank. blame her for being mad at him. Well, yeah, but, I mean, she's, she's different in this film in the sense that now, even though she is doing the bidding of someone else or something else, she does, for the first time, have real power, and it executes it, you know, with relish, and, um, you know, so that, that is a major point of difference, and so she is much more of a threat rather than, you know, a human who's just messing with things she shouldn't mess with, and, um, you know, and that's that's also kind of what makes uh, Chrissy's uh, her resourcefulness. That's part of what makes it so kind of turnabout is fair play uh, when she wears her skin to fool the doctor. And it's like, you know, because I, I kind of thought to myself, I was like, well, you know, we know that that taking of skin and all of that, that that's a, a thing. 
uh, because that's what happened with her father and Frank, and it's like, well, you know, turnabout's fair play there, and it's like, well, <laughs> she again has a lot of courage, because that must not be pleasant, yeah. you know. Uh, Julia gets sucked into a vortex and loses her skin. Which again, that's like, oh dear, my my skin came off. Oh no, I better mm-hmm. get better take it to a tailor. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's like, oh darn, don't you hate it when that happens? And uh, you know, it's the this the that's the interesting thing I think is that it's not just having a physical body; uh, it's specifically skin and, and how that kind of. It's sort of like a disguise in some ways, but it's also the sign of legitimacy, but it's also the the currency in this particular, you know, underworld or alternate dimension or whatever. It's, it is sort of a, a currency in the sense that, you know, if you've got it and it's intact, then you are this whole person or this powerful being. But, you know, it's the thing that... Even the Cinnabites and the fact that Cinnabites are so extremely um, modified with the piercings and the weirdness about them. You know, for the for the humans, you know, people who are freshly brought in, the easiest way to differentiate them is just to fucking skin them. I mean, you look at the third film, they follow that same damn pattern where um, the character JP, you know, the, the chick that he's, you know, having sex with that when he activates the sculpture with Pinhead stuck into it, the girl gets skinned, like, immediately. Like, I don't know what it is with Clive Barker and skinning, but damn. That was like, I would not that even talk to Sex Engine. I think it's... It's like student short films. Oh, okay. It's, that, uh, wow. actually, it's really worth... It's kind of worth commenting on. Um, in The Forbidden, they have... The ending of it is... They're showing what looks like somebody being skinned, and it's very convincing to the point where it, like, really gross people out. Um, what they do is, it was shot in black and white with, like, a reverse negative, and they literally just, like, painted different layers on somebody. Like, it was, like, a $12 effect. They just painted different, like, thing. They just painted different, like, body layers on somebody, and then put, like, saran wrap on, and then, like, pretended to, like, carefully cut it away. So it looked like they were skidding him. It was pretty wild. Well, that's always been, Barker has a thing for it's always been his thing. Well, well, I think part of it is that well, you've got the the flaying of the flesh as the source of pleasure and pain and all that stuff. So that's like a big deal. But it's also uh, well, it's the kind of the the clothes you wear, shall we say, uh, of your being rather than literal clothes, but it's like it's the thing that kind of holds you together and it's what you present to the world or to this other world. Um, and in the case of the Cenobites, like they were human, but they're not. They're this other thing. They're this other entity. And so they they don't have what they once had and they have this... this uh, you know, they've kind of embraced this mutilation as a form of, of you know, pleasure in their own kind of status, you know, um, which in a way, I guess you could almost say, like, if you want to look at it this way, almost like, um, you know, a lot of what was at the time, you know, what constituted gay fashion versus, like, being in the closet, you know, 
and how oh, you know, could, well, you know what I mean. Like you could wear a nice suit and everything and look all proper, or you could like go all out. And I think in their case, it's like, well, they're going all out. And um, well, I think also like with the film, with this, with these films, with at least in the eighties, with the whole leather. I mean, even like the Cinnabites, they're wearing like leather. Like everything they're wearing is like decked out black, shiny leather and stuff. It makes me think of. Um, the second Nightmare on Elm Street film where the gym teacher is this asshole sadist and then it turns out that he's a closeted gay guy who goes to these like S&M clubs with you know that is such a stereotype you know back then but that was the fringe element that gay people you know wore gimp outfits and they went to bathhouses and they liked spanking and shit like that. That was such a stereotype. And I feel like part of that is played out in Hellraiser. It was a stereotype, but it also, that is what happened. Very offensive stereotype. Yeah, but it also did happen quite a lot, you know, with like, I mean, Jeffrey Dahmer, (laughs) where he, uh, he went to the bathhouses of Milwaukee to find some of his early victims. And that's, because there were all kinds of, um, because being gay did get, like, decriminalized in the 70s for a lot of the country. Not all of it, but, like... Or, uh, or you what know, you mean? Or, well, no, well, there were... Uh, or rather, let me rephrase. I think I'm, I'm thinking I'm confusing things. So there was pornography that was decriminalized around that time. Yeah. But the act of sodomy, and by extension, gayness itself, was as recent as, uh, I think it was Lawrence versus Texas or something in 2003. But... The, um, anyway, the point is that, um, the, it's a stereotype and we look at it that way, but at the same time, like, the being gay was still very much an underground thing, uh, even if it was, like, in Hollywood or whatever, it was an open secret in a lot of ways, but, uh, it was still seen as a taboo even there, and let yeah, alone but I'm the, country, the extreme so. elements of it, though, the most extreme element, elements, because, you know, it, because because homosexuality was something that was considered taboo back then, they would equate the homosexuality with the extremism. And mm-hmm. the extremism being this stuff that, okay, so take two straight people, and what's the most extreme thing for straight people? Dildos up the ass, get yeah. options, ball gag and shit like that, you know, choking. That's extreme. So let's go ahead and equate that with homosexuals. Boom. Yeah, it was convenient because they were already uh, a seen as deviant or whatever, so you just take these these fringe elements of them and you throw them together and it's like you got it. And it's not representative or whatever, but, you know, it, it, it of the whole or, or the historical entirety of homosexuals, obviously, but it's like it, the point is, like, there was... There was enough of it to make an association of some kind, but it was not gonna. I mean, there's a reason why cruising, you know, the the William Friedkin film, like why that had a backlash because it was perceived to be homophobic, you know, with the leather bar and things like that, you know. And um, so, I mean, but but again, it's like that those things did exist, but it's like it's not representative then or even now, but. Uh, I will say that, you know, for sure the, there was a side of gay culture, from what I understand, there was a side of it that was, like, there's a reason why, like, the John Waters of the world, why 
the whole idea there was to be as outrageous as possible, but then, like, once certain states started legalizing gay marriage, like, I think Massachusetts was the first one, you know, then it was, um, because I I saw a documentary about, um, it was outfoxed, uh, that documentary, and they were saying how Mm. they weren't able to show a lot of the footage that they used to like to show with the gay pride parades that would have, you know, assless chaps and would have all the extreme outfits, but then when people were actually going to get married, then it was like, well, they're just very normal-looking people. So part of it was, I think, that there was a, a subset of the culture at the time that if you were out, then you were, like, you were out there, man, like, really out there, uh, and out and about and everything. Um, but then, of course, then once these strides got made, then it was like, oh, well, these more conventional ones, they've been here all along. They just that reminds me... That reminds me of a meme I saw a while ago. Uh, Ivan Ooze, bisexual icon. Yeah, I mean, I could, I could see it, you know. Um, but but I mean, my, my point being that, yeah, it looks, you know, pretty inaccurate to us um, today, and it, it most certainly was at the time. It's just more so that I do think there was a shift in not only larger American culture, but certainly within even... Um, what was the visible, you know, gay subculture that there was a more of a need to push the envelope in the public sphere uh, than there even necessarily is now because it is more accepted, you know. So I would, I would agree with that, but I'd also say that there was uh, more of a, you know, we can be really outrageous, um, it, that there was an element of it at that time. Okay. Um, I think we should probably start uh, wrapping up. By the way, so I think we've covered. I think we've covered. Let's see. Going down our list here, I think we've covered the plot and the characters pretty adequately. Uh, so, in terms of special effects, uh, this movie has pretty top tier special effects. I think a few things that don't really hold up for me are some of the close ups of like the hooks going into skin. Uh, like they look. A little too phony, you know what I mean? They looked like they were recycled from the last movie. Some of them. Yeah. They may have been. <laughs> like the shots, I mean. Well, in, uh, I think I think some of them actually... I think they were definitely recycled shots, but the new effects that they do for the, the hooks into the skin aren't exactly uh, aren't exactly winners either, in my, in my opinion. But pretty much everything else looks great, like especially like the design of the Chenard... Cenobite, like, uh, I know I keep going back to Dr. Chenard, but he's just so cool, like... Yeah, he's a really captivating <laughs> character, and well, the, I, I do agree with you, I think the the effects are as good, and in many respects better, um, than the last film overall, and I didn't see any obvious, um, mistakes, like, with, uh, you know, any monsters that are on gurneys or anything like that, I didn't see anything yeah. like that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think the makeup, like, the things that really stick out to me about the film are the, well, the Cenobites themselves are so interesting looking and so, like, they, they look so, like, in control of themselves and, like, they don't necessarily hurt all the time or if they do, then they don't mind it. But it's like that, like, I know that with Frank coming back to life gradually, 
that the more skin he gets, then the more he's able to be, feel pain again because, well, he doesn't have all his skin, so he's going to hurt, you know? And so it's like, I, I assume with them that, you know, if they're hurting, then they probably don't mind it anymore. But, uh, you know, with, with the doctor, um, you know, you can tell that he does have his moments of pain, but also that... It's a very painful process to become a Cenobite. Very clearly, but also that he is able, he's willing to do what it takes to become this powerful being. So, you know, it's uh, it's an interesting uh, blend there. But yeah, the, the makeup for these creatures, like, I'm always blown away by the originality, but also just the grotesquery and how, again, I'm not usually freaked out by gore, but I think the big thing with these films is that it's not just the physical flaying of the flesh, but what it means for them on a larger spiritual level, that it's their souls being torn apart and deformed and, you know, uh, mutilated and all that stuff. And, um, and the fact that you just, you get to physically see these skinless humans and, you know, body parts strewn about everywhere. And you get to see it for like long shots and you're like, wow, you know, it's, with Saw, you know, it's like, yeah, those are gruesome, but it's like, those are only for, like, a few seconds max. Um, and here, it's like, these are, like, uh, sustained shots, and it's like these whole beings that are just walking bags of dust. Anybody, uh, <laughs> anybody else have anything on effects? Uh, I mean, other than the makeup and costume design, which is always there, I actually liked some of the creativity and effect design in the first film a little bit more and the reason for it is I could definitely tell the effort uh, they had to double their effort because they had half the budget so to me I, I always look at that and I say this is a I actually considered the, the effects in the first film better just from some of the stuff the stop motion uh, so they didn't have to try and use some of the cheaper CG that they had to use uh, in the second film. So I do feel like more effort was made in the uh, first one and the second one. But necessity, you know. Oh. Yeah. The, uh... I didn't really like the um, effects in the second one. I felt like they were better in the first one, mainly because they had a smaller budget to work with. And they seem to try. They they say what again? They were a lot less ambitious, I think, in the first one too. Like, yeah, Dr. Chenard was a really complicated design with a lot of moving parts. It was. But at some point, say what? It's elaborate. I mean, that because that adds to the the scope pretty readily. Well, it was just a matte painting, so that wasn't that wasn't too bad. It was convincing. <laughs> yeah, it was a convincing at some point, if I recall correctly, like years ago, I had read at some point that the filmmakers, they the actor who played Chenard, they they had a falling out at some point. So that pre that that presented filming issues at some point. Allegedly. Oh, I don't remember hearing anything about that. Um, he I, was, I know. It was on the commentary for the disc. Yeah, well, I mean, again, it's been like 30 plus years since they filmed it. But I'm just saying, like, several years ago, there was I heard there was drama. And then I heard there was also drama between the filmmakers and Andrew Robinson, who played Larry in the first one. That's so, who knows? 
which uh, that that reminds me of something I forgot about the first one. Did you notice Frank like seemed like all of his dialogue was overdubbed? It was dubbed. That's what I thought. Yeah, voice. Well, his his voice was way too menacing to come out of that body. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I if it were better done, I'd believe it. But yeah, that it was that was definitely not that guy's voice. No, not at all. It, they they did say they did say that that was dubbed. I forget who the 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 voice actor was, but it was definitely not. Um, God, Sean, what was his, what's the actor's name? Definitely wasn't his voice. Basically, yeah, it didn't work at all. Speaking of sound, uh, just kind of touching back on the music uh, slightly. So great opening theme. Uh, apparently, you can mm. fall asleep to it. <laughs> it, it definitely is on par with the first one. I mean, they they like go together. Big, it's like a big, it's like a big budget, like booming operatic theme, and I. I don't know how you can fall asleep to it? I'm, it's kind of similar in a way. It's kind of similar to actually the um, the fly score that Howard Shore did, which also. I'd agree with that. They actually do something similar. They borrowed. Uh, well, the fly for sure, but I imagine Howard. I watch those the I watch those movies the every week, and I I agree with you on that. Well, the Howard Shores and and David Cronenberg both they specifically lifted the well visual cues, but also the music very directly from uh, uh, opera, and I imagine that the there was a quite a lot of operaticness uh, with this score as well uh, for both the first two films. Anybody else on music? Um, uh, I like the way I said the music. Saying. I liked it. <laughs> we already nailed it? Alright, yeah. great. Well, let's move on to favorites. I'm going to start with my favorite, which is Dr. Chenard becoming a Cenobite. Because mm-hmm. that whole scene is just awesome. And especially the way it ends. You know, that line that we just can't stop saying, <laughs> to think I hesitated. Which is uh, a good one. I'm, I'm currently doing gym training again, and I'm kind of using that to spur myself on. You know, just thinking of what it'll be like in three weeks when I'm done. Because mm-hmm. the biggest challenge is getting in and out the door of the gym. Yeah. And it'll be, uh, it'll be like that, you know, to think I hesitated, you know, when I've dropped 10 pounds. <laughs> I'm trying to think, because, I mean, everything having to do with him is great, and we know that, but, like, um... I love it when the Cenobites get introduced, uh, well, in the first one, to Christy, but we kind of already see at least Pinhead in the first one before we even before we even know exactly what he is or anything. So in a way, it's like, well, the, the, the build-up or whatever is not as good as... He's it, recognizable as Pinhead as a human. Yeah, well, but the... Uh, I mean, you get a little bit in this backstory there, but, like, what I what I mean is, like, by the time, once the Cenobites formally appear in here, there's been enough build-up to where when they appear, it's, like, a big deal, and then you see um, Pinhead's silhouette, and he comes into the light from the darkness, and I was like, well, that's, that's how they should have done it in the first one, where, you know, there's a lot of mystery and build-up, because uh, they kind of play their trump card a little early with the first one. Uh, but, like, I felt like, yeah, that's that's how you introduce them, because 
you know, that that's just that adds a whole mystery and majesty to it. And um, when again, then, then they slap you with something to defy your expectations, which is that they don't really have any interest in Tiffany, you know. So again, that's a that's a good twist on it right after you get this awesome introduction, you know. Well, my favorite scene is an odd one because I actually like the weird carnival scene that they throw in there. And the reason for it is, uh, is that the world that they enter into is much more complex than just the maze. And that kind of shows it. Uh, that maybe there's a lot more depth that we haven't explored yet. I'm still kind of curious as to how that fits in the hole. And I like that. That gives me more of an interest as to where they are. Well, for all we know, it could very much be subjectively generated, much like how Silent Hill as a town tends to look different for each person that's there. So, yeah, for all we know, this world could just change according to who's in it. Kim, what is your uh, favorite scene in this film? Oh, man. I'm going to say the scene that probably grossed me out the most. And for some reason, it's my favorite scene because you can kind of see that... It, it, well, it's the scene where Gennard brings the guy, the patient in the straitjacket, and he hands him a scalpel. Like, in that moment, you can see that Gennard is completely soulless that he is devoid of any empathy or caring, and that this guy is definitely not a real... He's a, he's a doctor, but only a name. Like, he doesn't care about his patients. He only cares about his own selfish aspect. Um, when he just lets the guy mutilate himself in the effort of, well, bringing back Julia, and then later on you see him um, interacting with Julia, where, okay, like... He's gone through these great lengths to bring her back, and then when he does, he's almost in a way disgusted by her, and in a way, you know, revolted because, like, he see he walks through his apart his house, and she's left a bloody handprint on his wall. She smashes his mirror when she sees what she looks like, and then later on, like, she go she gets him, herself in one of his suits, and of course, she picks the all white one. And he's like, oh, yeah, sure, you look great. You know, why, clearly lying to her because when she takes a cigarette from him and she leaves a little trail of blood on his fingers, he wipes it away. Like, mm -hmm. even though, like, he, yeah, well, even though, like, later on he gets into the whole thing, but there's still that part of him that is disturbed, that is like, ew, but. Oh, yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at the whole thing and I'm like, you know, I got this walking pile of guts in my sterile white white house you know that it just and that's a great touch the fact that his house looks so sterile and it looks like a goddamn operating room almost yeah well she's just this walking tub of guts and blood and like and she's like kissing her and i'm like put some skin on before you touch me with that shit uh, and, uh, yeah, just uh, that that and the mutilation, like you said, that grossed me out. <laughs> uh, my favorite 
part in here would probably be where um, Kirsty wears the skin of her stepmother. That's good uh, stuff. That's uh, some good creepy stuff because you don't expect her to be wearing the shit, you know, and then she pulls it off and you see all the blood on her and it's like, ew. But um, the fact that she saves what's her name's life is kind of priceless. <laughs> So. Well, it helps her save Tiffany, um, because she's able to distract Shenard long enough for Tiffany to grab the puzzle box and solve it, which sucks, which sucks Leviathan back into its own corner of the labyrinth. Uh, killing Dr. Shenard because they're still attached, and it rips his head right off. Well, and it shows her, it shows her courage, too, because it's like, I can't think of many characters that would do such a thing, you know, but, you know, she doesn't hesitate, and it's like, well, that... That says a lot about her, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, anyone else? I think we got everybody. Okay, uh, then, uh, let's, uh, do our outros th uh, then. Kim, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, I'm Kim from Kim Creates Stuff. You know, I'm going to change that name soon. But I actually am, it's my YouTube channel, and I am planning a, a new series where I discuss um, books that were made into movies, or just books, so I'll try to decide that, while I'm doing my makeup. So, getting the girls and the guys, you know, into that whole thing. All right, um... Dean, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? I am uh, Dane Kyle, a.k.a. Dane Dameron on YouTube. I'm on a channel called Indie Horror Film Creative where I do unboxings and, uh, you know, some film reviews and things. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to get my organs organized again uh, when it comes to... Uh, you know, I had a really good uh, job interview today, and I think I've got a really good chance of hopefully getting an offer tomorrow. I really, really hope so. Um, but point being that, uh, you know, the show will go on regardless, um, and, uh, you know, I'll be set to move pretty soon. So once all of those kind of outstanding things, once they've been settled, then I'll be able to get into a more regular uh, rhythm of unboxing like usual and building the collection up and all that stuff i just finished uploading all my pictures to my newly revamped instagram so people can go there it's a uh, dane damron on instagram um and um you can find the collection there and look at each individual title if you wish in more detail and i'm also the producer of a film called Axe 2 Grind, which has its uh, Indiegogo going on right now. So go ahead and look for that. And, uh, you know, that's just a few things I'm up to. But I'm getting back into the swing of things. Okay. Uh, Dustin, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Well, I am a horror collector living here in Milwaukee. I show off the stuff that I find on my YouTube channel, The Crypt of Horrors. Um, and that's also the name of my Instagram, where I do pretty much the same thing, just a lot less frequently, uh, The Crypt of Horrors. Uh, I recently unboxed the Scarlet Box um, with the Hellraiser series, one, with Hellraiser 1, 2, and 3 in it. 
And that video should be going live relatively soon, either tonight or tomorrow. So, uh, go to my channel and check that out. Okay. Um, going over to Septim, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? I'm uh, Septim Sen of Septim Sen versus the World. Uh, of course, uh, we like physical media where we are, and uh, we talk about all the various loves and enjoyment f or physical media, uh, including what's coming out, pickup videos, reviews, and various other things. Uh, one of the uh, other things, though, that I do is I work with Inside Movies Galore and helping to coordinate the schedule. Of course, uh, we had this as sort of a little segue to our uh, next month as we go from Superhero Summer to Kaiju Combat. And for those of you who are our big rubber-suited uh, lizard fans out there, uh, we have two Godzilla films. Uh, actually, I should say two takes of the same Godzilla film as we look at the original Godzilla King of the Monsters, uh, 1956, I believe, and uh, the very original, the one that started it all as our main event uh, and highest voted, Gojira, uh, the 1954 film. It's going to be a hoot, and I'm sure we can all get some enjoyment. Well, we, we, saw, we saw people that enjoy rubber suits in these films, but these are rubber suit lizards, so got something else <laughs> going on for you. <laughs> and my name is David Stragi. I am uh, one of the founding fathers of Inside Movies Galore, so thank you, Kepa, for coming along with us on our journey of uh, discovering fi uh, film and uh, wa uh, watching films that we have not seen in years. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> to uh, uh, go uh, uh, go on, uh, enjoy with each other. Uh, so um, make sure that uh, if you find a puzzle bo uh, box, uh, you uh, stay away from it at all times because all the happiness in the world is right exactly with you at, at all times, I think. <laughs> do, what, uh, do what Hulk Hogan said and say your prayers and take your vitamins, just don't be a racist. <laughs> <laughs> I also moonlight under a different channel called uh, Delusions of Grandeur, and lately I've been uh, watching the Alfred Hitchcock films, so check out some of those reviews. Uh, and uh, so on and so forth. So, so like, share, and subscribe, and uh, definitely... Check out our uh, our next film discussion as we dive into China's biggest secrets. Uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> and close-ups on screen. So, in any case, uh, like, share, and subscribe. Thank you so much. Enjoy. Good night, all. This is called a neuralizer. It's a gift from some friends from out of town. This red eye here will isolate the electronic impulses in your brains, and more specifically the ones for memory. 
Well, that's good, fellas. Give me a splay burn around the perimeter with holes at 40, 60, and 80 meters from right here. Thank you. That's good. Thank you. What in the hell is going on? Excellent question. And the answer you're looking for lies right here. Who are you? Really? Really? I am just a figment of your imagination. Damn, what a gullible breed. <laughs>